And that night, there was a phone call between the two of them. The next morning, Sandberg started <laughs> buying Heller Financial. The next day, Mac got into a deal that Pequot arranged for him where he made $5 million in four months. So it looked like a little bit of quid pro quo. Now, I found one other case involving Sandberg where he was hiring somebody out of Microsoft. And he had sent his future employee an email that said, do you know what earnings are going to be? It was that blunt. Can you give me some tidbits on earnings? The quarter had just closed, but earnings had not been announced. They would be announced in two weeks. Like Heller Financial, Sandberg loaded up on Microsoft, buying Microsoft options that were essentially synthetic stock. I put these cases together. I found all the emails. My supervisors were very excited about the case. They wanted me to take it to the U.S. attorney in New York and get it, and, and get it uh, elevated to a criminal investigation so there would be simultaneous criminal investigation and SEC investigation. I put together the emails, a binder. I sat down with my supervisors. I walked them through the evidence. And after the evidence, after I presented the evidence, my supervisor gave me this Perry Mason Award. Now, the quote below is from a Senate report two years later. After Aguirre previewed the presentation for Kreitman, he gave Aguirre a motivational award in recognition of developing the case into a potentially criminal matter. The award was a photocopied picture of Raymond Burr in reference to Burr's portrayal of the fictional character, fictional legendary attorney Perry Mason. I was on top of the world. I got to the SEC. I put together this case. There had been no major cases against any hedge fund ever by the SEC. My supervisors were stoked. It had been elevated to a criminal prosecution, and we were going. Then this happened. After this, there was a newspaper article. And the newspaper article discussed that John Mack, who was my suspect in Heller Financial, was going to be possibly hired by Morgan Stanley as its new CEO. And so we began to get some buzz from Morgan Stanley to the SEC about my investigation and was it really serious. And I got that kind of a call. And then the calls went above me. Now, let me talk to you about who the people were on the other side of this investigation. Stanley Sporkin, former head of the Division of Enforcement of the SEC. I was in the Division of Enforcement. Between me and the top were five people. He was the top. Irving Pollack, former enforcement director and former SEC commissioner, both representing Pequot. Bernie Nussbaum, former White House counsel to the president, was on the other side of the case and actively participating in the defense. Mary Jo White, U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, former, former uh, U.S. attorney for the Southern District. U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York is the Wall Street cop. She was on the other side of the case in, in, uh, representing Mac. By the way, she's currently the chairman of the SEC. And another attorney also representing John Mack was Gary Lynch, also a former 
director of enforcement. So I had three former enforcement directors, a commissioner, and a former White House counsel on the other side of a case. And this is what I had on my side. Aguirre shared one paralegal with several other attorneys working other cases. By contrast, one law firm freed Frank. This is a Senate report, by the way. This is my, this is a Senate report. Contrast, one law firm freed Frank, representing Pequot, said it had 59 attorneys and paralegals working on the case and reviewing documents six days a week and 60 hours per week. Now, the case was still going well. But, and here's the article. Morgan Stanley in recent days has weighed reconsidering Foreman Morgan, Morgan President John Mack as a candidate for chief executive of the Wall Street firm. So they were beginning to think about bringing him in, and the problem was he could not come in with a tail. And my enforcement case against Pequot and possibly him was a tail. If he would come in with that, and in six months there was an enforcement proceeding filed, then there would be a case against the CEO or the president of uh, Morgan Stanley, and you can expect what would have happened to the stock. So the board of directors needed to know, is he going to come in with the tail? There was a phone call. And this phone call came one week after I got the case elevated to a criminal case. Mary Jo White, current SEC chairman, called Linda Thompson, who is a former enforcement director, and essentially said, you know, we got a problem. Morgan Stanley needs John Mack. And within a few days, the word came down that there would be no testimony taken of John Mack. He was off bounds. I went to my immediate supervisor and said, you know, hey, I, I, I sent you an email the other day. I'm going to subpoena John Mack and, you know, get rolling on that uh, because, you know, it's, it's a next logical step in the investigation. He said, I can't let you do that because Mac has too much political clout, too much juice, he's too well connected, and you're going to have, you know, I can't, I can't green light that. That's where it stopped. I pushed back. I wrote memos. I laid out the evidence, exhibits, emails that we'd gathered together, phone calls, everything that pointed to, I'm not saying that Mac was the tipper, but I'm saying that everything that we looked at at that point in time pointed in that direction. The evidence trail led to his door. It was the logical thing to do. Uh, I'd taken 70, uh, I'd issued 70 uh, subpoenas in the case at that point, never a pushback on anything, never asked to write a memo. And in this case, I wrote multiple memos laying out all of the facts. The answer was no. What's his motive? Well, his motive was he got, into, he got a $5 million deal. And there would be, every time I, I would press, there would be another justification. Finally, they said, Gary, why don't you go on vacation? And when you get back from vacation, we'll vet your facts. And if you're right, we'll go ahead and take his testimony. Now, by this point, I had taken this issue up, three levels up, to the head of the uh, division of Enforcement. I would have gone to the chairman of the SEC, except for this statement back to me, go on vacation, we're going to vet it. So I went on vacation and came to San Diego, 
Spent two weeks on one of my favorite places in the world, uh, South Mission Beach in San Diego. And on my last day there, I got a phone call from uh, my assistant director, and it was very short and blunt, you're fired. Now, I didn't know anyone in Washington. I had no contacts. I had no political contacts. I'm a San Diego guy. I was a trial lawyer in San Diego. That doesn't cut anything in, in, in D.C. So I was pretty much at a loss for a while. I, ran it, I, I managed to make contact with a, a non-governmental organization that helps whistleblowers. And um, eventually got introduced to Senator Grassley. And the investigation uh, of the SEC got underway. <coughs> But during this period of time when I was trying to get momentum and trying to, 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 to get some congressional support, the SEC struck back. First, I, get, I sent them a letter that said, look, I have talked to Congress. I've talked to the Office of Special Counsel. It's my understanding that I can turn over to them the evidence I have of, of what happened at the SEC why I was fired, and what happened to the Mac investigation. The SEC responded with a letter saying that I was in violation of a criminal theft statute by being in possession of the records. Get them back immediately and do not give them to government. That's the, by the way, that's the same criminal statute that Edward Snowden is now being charged with, theft of government records. Now, there was a problem I had my notebook with me when they fired me. I didn't take anything. I was in possession of it. The statute says that a whistleblower may turn over evidence of illegalities, abuse of authority to the Office of Special Counsel. And there was a case on it, Jacobs uh, versus U.S., involving a U.S. uh, attorney. And the court had held in that case that he was entitled to have the records and entitled to turn them over. So I sent the letter to the SEC saying, what about the Jacobs case? Aren't I entitled to hold on to these records? Silence. I sent him another letter, another email. After about six weeks, I figured out I wasn't going to get a response, and I turned the records over to the U.S. attorney. About four months later, they threatened me again. A couple of years later, I got the SEC files. And I found the communications between the general counsel and the inspector general. And they had concluded that I was right, that they could not threaten me, but they did it anyway. They went on a, uh, and I'll show you a, a, a memo in a minute, they then attacked my character, personality in the media. They leaked stuff. And it was sponsored by the SEC's Office of the General Counsel. They met. I got their notes. Let's make this guy out in the media to be a basket case. That's what the notes said of five members of the general counsel's staff, including a a top associate general counsel. They then sued me to get my communications with the Senate. And I had to retain an attorney and fight with them over that. Now, that was kind of comical because... What happened is that three Senate committees got very upset. 
The Senate told the Department of Justice to back down. Department of Justice said no. We're, gonna, we're representing the SEC. We're going to sue this guy and get the records that he gave to you. Then the Senate put on uh, a uh, memorandum or a, a motion on the floor of the Senate. They, they had the motion ready to put on the floor of the Senate and said to the Department of Justice, okay, if you don't back down, the Senate counsel is going to intervene in the case on the other side. So we almost had U.S. versus U.S. In any case, the Senate did back, uh, the SEC did back down after they sued me, but then they opened three investigations. Now, the most humorous of the investigations is, is that they thought I was a hacker and that I hacked in to the SEC's computers. Now, folks, I want you to picture a hacker in your mind and look at me, okay? I mean, it was on its face absurd. I, was, I practiced law until 1995, and, and I had a computer, but I never turned it on. Then they decided that I'd snuck into the SEC, you know, maybe wearing a mustache or so. They couldn't figure out how I knew so much. They figured I'd snuck into the SEC, and so they took down all the, they collected all the videos, and they had somebody watch all the videos to see if they could spot me. They couldn't find me. And then they, they thought, okay, let's go back through his vacations to see if he ever took off more time. And I got all the emails of all of these investigations. This is the government striking back at a whistleblower. Now, my situation, I was a lawyer. I was a smart lawyer. I was an experienced lawyer. And when I took a move as a whistleblower, I stayed within what I perceived to be the law. But they came after me anyway. This is, I mentioned they threatened me with prosecution. Down here is the statement that... uh, Pursuant to applicable, you were not permitted to take that property with you uh, when your commission employment terminated. 18 U.S.C. 1641. That's the same statute that, that uh, Edward Snowden is now being charged with. This is the memo I told you about. This is Richard. This is members of uh, high levels within the SEC's general counsel. They just found out that the New York Times had printed a front page article about my firing, so they were going to strike back and they were going to leak information to the SEC, to the New York Times, that I was a basket case former attorney, and they did. New York Times wouldn't print it. This is the lady that just came out of nowhere. Her name is Joanne Royce. She was a staff attorney with the Government Accountability Project, the NGO. I'd sent them a letter. They, They help whistleblowers. And she introduced me to the staff of this gentleman, Senator Chuck Grassley. Grassley is a champion of the whistleblowers in the uh, U.S. Senate. Somebody on the banking committee released a letter of mine to the New York Times. It found its way into the front page. It became a front page article in the New York Times. Uh, This is uh, the thrust of it. These officials, this is Congress and other agencies, are examining charges by Gary Aguirre, the SEC lawyer who ran the Pequot investigation until last summer, that senior SEC officials had backed his inquiry, including the issuance of scores of subpoenas, until he sought the testimony of an influential Wall Street executive. So the New York Times is, is running with this. The Wall Street Journal is, is, is sort of the counterpoint. They're saying, well, you know, maybe there's not the evidence there. 
The SEC is bringing on former uh, directors and, and uh, two chairmen of the SEC. They brought two chairmen of the SEC onto CNBC to say that I was full of it, that this could never happen at the SEC. And Senator uh, Specter jumped into the fray. He subpoenaed all of my supervisors and, and pulled them in, opened uh, an investigation with Senator Sp- uh, Grassley that went on for 18 months, and I wound up here. There were three hearings in 2006 on my firing and the closing of the MAC investigation. I'm the uh, hairless guy on the left. Sitting next to me is the former SEC Inspector General. He would resign the day after the Senate report was issued. Next to him is my supervisors, three of them in a, four of them in a row. The new SEC Inspector General would recommend that all four of them be disciplined. And then on the far right is a guy that caught it, got caught in the fray, uh, a, a friend of uh, Professor Hollister. And uh, his name I'm not going to mention. He didn't want to be there. Everyone was called to testify. He said, I have no testimony. But then when Senator Specter began to question him, he told the truth. He essentially said that he was present when senior SEC officials said we couldn't take Mac's testimony and that it made no sense. And with his backing and a couple of other folks backing the that stood up and, and said what happened, and my emails, it made a difference. I testified now, at this point in time, when I testified, the SEC was doing absolutely nothing about insider trading with hedge funds. And I testified, this was in part on what I'd learned from my work on my, at Georgetown, studying PCORA. I testified, there is growing evidence that today's unregulated pools, hedge funds, have advanced and refined the practice of manipulating and cheating other market participants. This species of fraud, victimizing other market participants, also operates under the SEC's radar. According to the FSA, that's the Financial Services Administration in the UK, insider trading is now institutionalized. Now, because of the flow of tips from investment banks to hedge funds, the FSA has uncovered signs of insider dealing at almost a third of British M&A deals. Now, we became aware of this, and we began to think, is this something going on everywhere? Now, until this point, the SEC looked at insider trading cases as a tip falling in somebody's lap. And they're acting on it unlawfully. They didn't perceive that there was a new predator roaming the streets of Wall Street called hedge funds. And some of these hedge funds didn't wait for the tip to fall in their lap. They hunted them down. That was a business. It was a business model. Insider trading had become institutionalized. And that's what I was telling the Congress. Now, the same reporter who broke the story got the New York Times to commission a study in the U.S. Now, I mentioned that A third of the M&A cases in the UK involved suspicious insider trading or appear to involve insider trading. 
So the New York Times commissioned a study to see if anything like that was going on here. And this was their finding. Evidence of insider trading in advance of 41% of the mergers in the U.S. of more than $1 billion, a higher percentage than the FSA had found in the U.K. So it was happening here. It was happening big time, and nobody was doing anything about it. I trustified twice that year. The second thrust of my second testimony was more directed at the SEC's failure. My testimony today will focus on a favor. Senior SEC officials gave it. Morgan Stanley and its CEO, John Mack, accepted it. The favor was an invisible shield. It shielded Mack from an SEC subpoena seeking his testimony and records in the PCM insider trading investigation. There are a dozen regulations, part of Title 17 of the U.S. Code of Federal Regulations, that prohibit the SEC from that kind of discrimination. You can't have a two-tiered prosecution. Now, to that point, the SEC, when I say that point, the Senate hearing you just saw, to that point, the SEC was not keeping track of whether there were uh, whether hedge funds were repeatedly involved in insider trading. Now, I would say that that's the first thing that happens in any rural DA's office or public defender's office. People say, this is the defendant. Are there any priors, any prior arrests, any prior convictions? The SEC was not doing that in relation to insider trading, so they were totally clueless what was going on and that there were these constant surge of referrals coming from the NASD and the NYSE. And this is, this is Linda Thompson's testimony on the last hearing when she concedes this fact. The SEC presently does not have an electronic system to aggregate referrals based on the identities of the specific traders, hedge funds, involved. But we anticipate implementing a new tracking system by mid-2007 that will enable us to compile all referrals from different exchanges and different time periods by trader. So they were going to start tracking referrals of insider trading. Now keep in mind these exchanges have market surveillance units where they track the the market, public announcements, unusual stock movements, factors that indicate insider trading. And these were constantly being referred to the SEC, but not tracked by the SEC. Three months later, the chairman of the SEC announced on March, no, before this, in February 2007, Senator Grassley and Senator Specter from the floor of the Senate politely asked the SEC to reopen the Pequot investigation, which they had closed. Of course, the SEC didn't. They had closed the investigation. All of the suspected cases of insider trading by by, uh, Pequot and its executives were swept under the carpet. Uh, Then on March 1st, the chairman of the SEC stated, the SEC is targeting hedge fund insider trading as a top priority. And then after that, there was a constant drumbeat coming out of the SEC and the Department of Justice that they're focusing on insider trading and they're going to break it. On August 3, 2007, the Senate issued this 108-page report. It was backed up by 2,000 pages of exhibits 
and testimony that they had taken. They took uh, 30 (coughs) depositions or interviews that were recorded or transcribed, and this was their conclusion. Regarding the phone call, White contacted Director of Enforcement Linda Thompson directly. Soon afterward, SEC managers prohibited the staff from asking John Mack about his communications with Arthur Sandberg at Pequot. The investigation was killed. About my comments of what I was told by my supervisor, Aguirre's claim is corroborated by internal SEC emails that I was told that I couldn't take his deposition or testimony because of his powerful political connections. Now, there was sort of a a little bizarre thing that happened. And the SEC, when the day they fired me, the moment they fired me to the second, they fired me and I was, they fired me effective the next day. But my access to everything at the SEC was terminated immediately. So I had none of my emails. I had none of the evidence to prove what had happened. But there was, I would would say that my lack of technical competence with computers saved me. What happened is that I had had a problem with my computer about 10 days before. Somebody from the tech staff of the SEC came up was trying to figure out why I wasn't being able, why I wasn't able to send or receive my, my emails. And somehow, when he was monkeying around or when I was monkeying around with my computer, I created a, a PST, a permanent PST. Now, if you know what PSTs are, they're basically the way co- emails are stored. So even though I was disconnected, accidentally, there was a PST on my computer and I played around with it. I couldn't figure out what it was. And eventually, after toying around with it for a while, all of my emails were back except for the last week. And that, that was the difference. The Senate report also discussed how the SEC had squandered the opportunity in Pequot. Five years later, in 2009, the SEC would begin a crackdown on the big hedge funds, the super hedge funds, Galleon, SAC Capital. Now there's... The former enforcement director, Kusami, says, I filed 170 cases against, uh, for insider trading, 40 of them against hedge funds. Uh, this last six months, SAC Capital paid $1.2 billion, $600 million to the SEC, $1.2 billion uh, to the Department of Justice for insider trading. This case was five years before. It involved the biggest of the hedge funds, and it was blown off. What the Senate said described it as an ideal opportunity squandered. And I've cut it down to just two of the points that how they say the SEC squandered the opportunity. Disclosing case information to John Mack's prospective employer, Morgan Stanley. My supervisors told Morgan Stanley's uh, counsel what evidence we had and didn't have in the investigation of Mack, which they're prohibited from doing. Preventing staff from questioning Mac until the statute of limitations had expired. Now, you know the statute of limitations. Statute of limitations is that statute that says if the case goes on too long, it's dead. You can't file it. So in my case, they fired me. They wouldn't let me take Mac's testimony. 
Then there was the brouhaha in the media, and with so much of the media coverage about it, the SEC decided to take the deposition, but they never got around to taking the deposition of Mac until the statute of limitations ran out, so it was a totally pointless act. So, I mean, you would think that somebody would say, well, <laughs> best not take it now, we're going to look silly. It didn't happen. After the Senate report came down, I had a case against the SEC to get my investigative files under FOIA. Under FOIA, to get your investigative files, you must prove that the agency conducting the investigation did something improper or illegal because investigative files are not usually turned over to the public, especially investigative files with names. I got them. I brought a summary judgment motion, which means I don't think there needs to be a trial. I think the law is on my side. I think the evidence is on my side. You should rule that I should get them. Judge Huvel did. And in doing so, she said, she pointed out a series of the SEC's uh, illegalities or improprieties, including the fact that they'd given overly deferential treatment to John Mack. So by mid-2008, it was as if I was back at the SEC. I had all of my investigative files, and I was still hopeful of trying to make a case against Pequot. In September 2008, uh, the new Inspector General, David Kotz, recommended that my supervisors be disciplined for han their handling the Pequot case and my firing. But then, in November of 2008, for me, the heavens opened. There was still something missing in terms of vindication. The SEC was still saying that it was all in my imagination. This guy had not conducted any insider trading. We'd had two cases I mentioned to you. One of the cases involving Microsoft, the other involving Heller Financial. Out of the heavens dropped this in my lap. This is, it was what everybody, when you say smoking gun, for me, what fell into my lap was the classic smoking gun. I received a phone call in November of 2008. It was like out of a, a movie. The voice said, Mr. Aguirre, I'm sorry I cannot disclose my identity to you, but I would like for you to know that David Zilka, the person you suspected as the tipper in Microsoft, is being paid off $2.1 million by Art Sandberg. I'll call you later. Click. <laughs> so that, I got a couple more phone calls like that. Finally, I got him on the phone. And he said, go to the Connecticut Superior Court in I think it was Stanford, Stanford and look in case Zilka versus Zilka. And you're going to find a declaration in there where David Zilka is saying that Sandberg paid him $2.1 million. I called the Senate. They sent an investigator over there, and there it was. What looked like obvious hush money. But then, <laughs> then it got even more bizarre. He called me and said, we finally got on the phone, and he still wasn't telling me who he was. And he said, I want you to know that I have... David Zilka's hard drive 
from 2001. Now, the hard drive from 2001 was extremely valuable because that's when I thought that Zilka had tipped Sandberg on Microsoft and Sandberg had made $15 million on synthetic uh, Microsoft stock. I'd left a memo at the SEC, a timeline. This is the timeline. And the timeline pinpointed April 9th, 2001, as the date on which I thought Zilka had tipped Sandberg on Microsoft's earnings. So I said to my anonymous caller, could you look in the hard drive and see if you can find an email around April 6th, 7th, or 8th of 2001. Now, on April 6th, 2001, Sandberg had sent an email to Zilka asking, you know, whether or not, or asking how Microsoft was going to do on its earnings. On April 7th, Zilka had sent an email back saying, I'm on it. On April 9th, I knew they talked. And on April 9th, Sandberg began buying massive, $200 million in, in, in synthetic shares of Microsoft. What we didn't know was what information Zilka had collected within Microsoft. So about three weeks later, my anonymous informer calls me back and says, I found this email. Let me read it to you. I don't think I could have drafted a better email if I tried of potential non-public information. It was an email from David Zilka on April 7th, the day after he'd been asked for earnings from, by Sandberg. And he was writing to a Microsoft executive, any visibility on the recent quarter? Microsoft had closed the quarter on the 30th of March and would announce on the 19th. Everybody expected Microsoft to miss earnings. They were, they were doing poorly in the U.S. There were questions about how its new system was going to work. And basically, and, and this was the response of the, mark, uh, the executive, Mark Spain, March was the best March of record. Microsoft had just had its best March in history. Made up for the shortfall in the U.S. There had been a shortfall in the U.S., and that was known, but nobody knew that it had been made up. Uh, WK2 Pro Major Contributor, the new system, was selling like hotcakes, on track for a revised forecast, which meant revised forecast upward. That was the smoking gun. That told Sandberg that Microsoft was not going to miss earnings, it was going to beat earnings. This was my letter to the SEC chairman on January 2nd, 16 pages long. It contained a summary of all of the evidence that I had collected through my FOIA case, through my original investigation, all the emails from the original investigation. And bottom line, I said, under cover of this letter, I am providing you with new evidence, some would call smoking guns, which suggest two courses of action and related to the aborted investigation of Pequot Capital Management. Reopen it and charge it as a crime. Forbes magazine reported on what happened next. After a scathing 2007 report by the Senate criticized the SEC's handling of Aguirre's Pequot investigation, and after Aguirre dredged up the smoking gun emails and passed them along to the Senate, the FBI, and the SEC in late 2008, 
the SEC reopened the case in January of 2009. This was, a, this was the same case I was looking at in 2004 and 2005. Uh, Wall Street Journal reported Pequot Capital, a top fund to close as firm faces probe. That's four months later, Pequot closed its doors. A year later, Pequot Capital and its chief agreed to settle SEC suit for $28 million. What happened to the whistleblower that came to me with the email? This is uh, New York Times. A couple has been awarded $1 million for information that led to an insider trading settlement against Pequot Capital Management. The $1 million award is a record for a whistleblower. And what happened to yours truly? New York Times. The settlement with me appears to be the largest disclosed by the Merit Systems Protection Board, the federal agency that oversees such cases. Now, mine was, in a sense, a happy story, if you can think of it that way. It was five years. It was, at times, um, anguishing uh, to think that the government is coming after you and you know that you've done nothing illegal. In fact, it's the government that's illegal. Government was violating, the SEC was violating regulations by giving preferential treatment to John Mack and fired and, and acting illegally for firing a whistleblower who was blowing the whistle about abuse of authority. And yet the government felt comfortable in threatening criminal prosecution, suing me, opening multiple investigations. How do you get involved in one of these things? You know, none of your folks raised your hands. I wouldn't have raised my hand either, for sure. What happens is that you face these moments where you are either a part of it or you are not. When somebody says, you're not going to take Mac's testimony because he has powerful political connections, and I say, okay, I'm part of it. I took an oath at the SEC to enforce the securities laws without that kind of bias. So what happens with a whistleblower is that you face a choice. They're not always very dramatic choices. The first choice I made was when I was told you can't take his testimony because of political connections. Quite frankly, I, I, there's another part of the story. My first reaction was, okay, I have a hunch this is going up to the top. This isn't my fight. I think I want out of here. Now, I was ready to leave. And then family and a friend of mine at the SEC began to say, look, if you leave, this investigation is over. It's dead. And my wife said, how are you going to feel about yourself in five years? So I made a decision to go up a notch, just one notch, to the associate director. And I sent him an email and walked into his office and said, look, 
I, I, I know what's going on. I know that, that Mac is off bounds because of his political connections. And his reaction was, my God, you're accusing me of that? And he, he was outraged. I said, no, I'm not accusing you of anything. I'm just telling you what Bob told me as the reason I couldn't take the testimony. Now, at that moment, had that guy that I went to called my supervisor and said, come on down here, I want to talk to you. Aguirre is telling me this weird story that you told him this. The thing could have perhaps been brought to a different conclusion, but that's not what happened. The SEC circled its wagons. And the next thing I knew, I was under attack because my investigation was insufficient. It wasn't this or it wasn't that. And then I decided, okay, I'm going to take it up another notch. And I went up another notch. And then things began, you know, the SEC wrapped, you know, the circles, wagons circled more. And then I'm fired. So do I walk away at that point? No. No. That's when I decided to go to Congress. And I interview at Senator Grassley's office, and I give them the emails, and they say, well, these emails are interesting. We're going to have to, un, you know, we're going to have to take this onion, the layers of this onion off one at a time. So they began to probe the SEC, and the SEC pushed back with them. And slowly but surely, it evolved and it evolved and it evolved and it evolved. There was never a point where I thought, I am making this decision that is going to change the course of my life. So it was all a series of small decisions. I, I think that's the way it is with some other whistleblowers. I don't think that, you know, I mean, I think that the uh, situation with Daniel Ellsberg was where he had this sudden realization and it shifted everything. I represent whistleblowers now. I represent a whistleblower by the name of Darcy Flynn. Darcy was at the SEC. He watched corruption there. When I say corruption, he watched the SEC destroy investigative files. He was the guy that basically had the directive to destroy the records. And at some point, he figured out this isn't legal. So he, he went public. Anyway, I don't think that I'm going to, you know, there's, I don't know whether any of you will face the, you know, these choices at times in your career, but I can tell you this, if you're going into the financial services arena, you're going to get challenged. That's my comments. Any questions? Did your deep throat ever identify himself? It turned out to be a doctor in Connecticut that married uh, the ex-wife of the whistleblower, of, 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 the, of the tipper. I've never, I'm sorry, I don't think of him as a deep throat. I guess he is. He had followed the investigation. He knew the whole thing. And he called me because he'd seen the SEC hadn't done anything. And his question to me was, what do I have to do to get the SEC to open an investigation? And my advice to him was, have him read about it in the newspaper. And that's what happened when they opened an investigation. Anybody else? Don't be shy. Yes, sir. Have I ever met him? Yes, or like in front of him or anything. 
I, I have never met him. I've been retained by someone else in a case involving him, but never met him. I understand John Mack is quoted. Do any of you watch Charlie Gasparino on CNBC by any chance? No? Okay. Well, Gasparino has written a book about the insider trading crackdown, and he quotes John Mack uh, in his book. And, yeah, he quotes, let's say he quotes John Mack's feelings about me, <laughs> and they're not kind either. So, anybody else? Up there. Uh, whatever happened to John Mack? Nothing. Nothing. Oh, yeah, he retired as CEO. I thought you meant uh, in terms of uh, civil action. I later got his uh, testimony from the SEC, and um, I just wish that I'd got it while I was an investigator. He, 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 uh, there was no explanation why Sandberg cut Mac in on a deal that made Mac five million bucks in four months. There was a very interesting cross-examination by Senator Specter of one of my supervisors when he when he was asking him why didn't he look into the fact that Mac had tripled his investigation in four months. And Specter, uh, Senator Specter asked my uh, my supervisor, "Well, were you aware?" that John Mack had tripled his $5 million investigation in four months. And my supervisor said, no, I was aware that he doubled an investigation. And Specter quickly quipped, was that one different than the one where he tripled his investigation? <laughs> I was hard to, to repress a giggle, even though I was sitting in witness stand. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Oh, boy. You know, it, would I do it over again? I don't think I would have been, done that to my family. Uh, I didn't know it was going to work out. In the middle of this crisis, when the SEC was threatening me with criminal prosecution, my wife was seven months pregnant uh, with twins. And uh, stress can cause something called, cause, called preeclampsia. And uh, it happened. And we, you know, there's a choice with preeclampsia. You have to have an immediate cesarean or, it, or you die. And so uh, we had to have two uh, little girls uh, two months premature. And th there was just a, a lot of stress. You know, my decision, I never made the decision, am I going to do this? I always made the decision, am I going to do that? Okay. Am I going to do that? And then, and then when, that, when I made that decision, then I had to make this decision. And at some point, there was no return. I was sort of trapped. I don't know, is the question. I don't know. I don't know whether I would have bought into this whole thing. You know, from a personal, just personal standpoint, 
in terms of a career, this was not a good career move. You know, I mean, <laughs> being a whistleblower is not a career-enhancing step. Yes, sir. But as a person of means, you you were lucky to have the financial means to undergo this. Not that it was any picnic for you. It makes you wonder institutionally where the SEC is when there are thousands of bureaucrats making fifty thousand dollars a year who are living paycheck to paycheck. That is a really, really good point, and it's absolutely true. Had I been the 28-year-old guy that I showed you earlier, I don't think I'd have started down this course. First of all, I, I, I brought two things. I brought sufficient wealth with me when I started there, and I also was experienced. I represent whistleblowers there now, and uh, if you're 40 years old and you have a family, I know a fellow, I, it comes to mind is in, in response to your question, uh, Sloan Scholar at Columbia Law School, that's a big deal. I don't know too much about it, but people in, in, in securities law, you know, you read that a lot on bios, CVs. Uh, he had that. Uh, and he was at the SEC, and he was doing well. And he pushed back. He lost his job. And I, I'd heard about him, and I finally got him on the phone. Uh, and he said he was following me. He had not reached out to me. But he had been following me, and, you know, and he liked what I was doing, and you know, you're doing great, but please leave me out of this. And his statement was, look, I'm working for an insurance company, not a big firm. I'm probably making two-thirds of what I would have made had I not had this encounter at the SEC. So, you know, pragmatically, it's, it's not a good decision. I don't know how I would have felt had I walked out of the SEC. You know, that's what I don't know. Because my wife seemed to feel, and I think so, that, you know, does something happen? I mean, you know, if you start making those kinds of decisions, does something happen to who you are that is, you know, changes who you are over time? That's, you know, bigger minds than me, you'll have to figure that out. Yes, sir. You were in a position to introduce new regulation in the markets. Uh, what single piece of legislation would you introduce and Great question. The first thing that I would do is I would nail shut the revolving door. I would bar anyone who works for the SEC from working within the financial industry for five years. That's, that, that is the biggest single problem. You go to the SEC. Let me give you, let me give you an illustration of that. Um, Robert Kusami, enforcement director at the SEC. Before becoming the enforcement director of the SEC, he was the top attorney for Deutsche Bank in the United States. In that capacity, he supervised all of the attorneys who prepared the toxic debt and credit default swaps and CDOs that exploded that gave us the 2008 financial crisis. Okay, 2009, it's time to crack Wall Street. Wall Street's got to learn a lesson because if it gets away with a $22 trillion, and that was the cost, by the way, according to the GAO, $22 trillion, the financial crisis. If it gets away with that and everybody walks, then we're just inviting Wall Street to do the same again. Now, Kusami 
is the guy appointed in 2009 at exactly the point in time that the SEC should be cracking down on Wall Street, and he's the guy that's told to go. If he's going to investigate Wall Street for CDOs and credit default swaps and imploding CDS, the, the Polson version, you know, the, the ones that are the CDOs, that were credit default swaps that were designed by hedge funds so they would fail. If he's going to be conducting those investigations of Wall Street, he's going to have to put himself on the list. And that's not going to happen. So he goes to the SEC. He's there from 2009 to 2012 gins up 170 insider trading investigations. And now with five years of insider trading cases in the pipeline at the SEC for the next five years, he jumps sides and takes a $5 million a year job in a law firm that defends exactly these kinds of cases. Now, if you were a cynic, you might think that personal motives may have played a hand in all of this. And it's that way, it's not, and I don't want to pick on Kusami because it's literally that way throughout. And, you know, I mean, Mary Jill White, you know, she's the chairman of the SEC. She intervened to stop the investigation, according to the Senate report. So, you know, when Ferdinand Pecora was invited to the White House, when uh, FDR signed the 34 Act, which created the SEC and the basic anti-fraud provisions, FDR looked over at Pecora, and they called him Ferd. He said, Ferd, is this going to be a good or a bad bill? And Pecora looked back and said, it's going to be a good or bad bill depending upon who enforces it. I think he was prophetic then. I think he would roll over in his, I mean, you know, he'd roll over in his grave if he thought that the people at the SEC were rotating in and out of the banks that they're supposed to be keeping an eye on. It's those banks, according to Pecora, that delivered the 1929 crash. From Mike's standpoint, from everything I've read, there were two factors. Massive leverage done in a different way, different types of engineering, but massive leverage interlaced with fraud. You know, it's like a building where the structure is this, you know, it's, it's how many stories high, but, you know, it's held together with fraud. And that is pretty much, I think, what delivered the 2008 crisis, massive leverage, different form, credit default swaps, off the balance sheets, assets like mortgage-backed securities, Bear Stearns on the night before, the night it collapsed, had uh, $33 billion in falling subprime debt off its balance sheet. And that, there was no way, in a 40 to 1 uh, uh, debt to equity ratio. Now, nobody would know what was off the balance sheet. And beyond that, 30, it had a $12 billion net worth, so a, roughly a 30% fall in Bear Stearns' net worth, and it was uh, toast. Beyond that, it had $2.5 trillion in credit default swaps off its balance sheet. Nobody knew about that. You know? And 
if the public had known, you know, if Bear Stearns' 10Ks, you know, maybe three years earlier, it said, you know, we got 50 billion of credit default swaps off the balance sheet that are not hedged. And by the way, our, our uh, net worth is 12 billion. Shareholders would have thought, hmm, maybe I ought to sell. And the market would have told the board of directors to clean up its act. But because everything is off the balance sheet, there's no transparency. The shareholders don't know what's going on. And you have massive leverage, no disclosures, and that's exactly what, what you know, and, and the SEC was supposed to be monitoring that. That was, you know, the SEC sent people to each of the banks, five banks, Bear Stearns, Goldman, Merrill, Lehman, I left one out. But all five of the banks, you know, uh, three of the banks failed, and two were on the verge of failure. And that, I think, has a lot to do with the fact that we have so little disclosure in the financial markets. And that responsibility is the SEC's. And so what the SEC has to do is to make the markets transparent. And that's not going to happen as long as the rotation is going on. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little off my track of insider trading, but this is a subject I got involved in in the Senate just before Bear Stearns crashed. I'd sent a letter to the Senate Finance Committee pointing out that Bear Stearns was in trouble and that they should ask the questions of the SEC when they were there. But, you know, the same thing is happening now. There's a bill right now. There's a very troubling bill that just came through the House. You know, I think, and what I've thought for years is that credit default swaps was a huge factor in creating the crisis. You know, the 70 trillion. Okay, so now the, the Dodd-Frank Act has a provision barring federally insured uh, uh, financial institutions from playing the credit default swap game. House Bill 922 permits that. So I don't see a solution coming. This and all previous episodes are available for download from our MP3 archive at unwelcomeguests.net slash archive. I've just last week created a new downloads page for the website. If you fancied downloading some earlier editions, didn't fancy through clicking one at a time, you can now download them a hundred episodes at a time. So those files are quite large, they're 5 gigabytes, they're zip files, so we've had 700 and something episodes, so there's 8 zip files. If you download them, you've got the complete Unwelcome Guests canon, 15 and a bit years since the program was started by Lynn Gary. Our theme tune by Billy Bragg and Wilco has lyrics by Woody Guthrie.